We'll be singing a, a little bit later on in response to um, the word that we're going to look at tonight. Just one notice, next Sunday evening we will not be here. There is a cornerstone celebration over at Bidford at the barn. It's uh, eight years since Bidford was planted. Isn't that amazing? Time has flown. You don't look any different first, but... You looked different a few weeks ago. <laughs> but uh, yeah, please do come along. I believe that there's a tea at 5.30 and then the service at 6.30. So over at the barn in Bidford, if you don't know where that is, do see Purse or anyone else here from Bidford tonight or myself. I know where it is as well. Okay, we're going to uh, turn to God's Word and we are in Romans and making our way through Romans. And it's amazing to think that when this letter was first read, it would have been read by just a handful of believers, maybe less, maybe more than we have here in this room. Yet the impact of this letter to the Romans has been world-changing. And in church history particularly, absolutely crucial. And so we're in chapter 3, verse 21, to um, the end of the chapter. But now. And if I was Martin Lloyd-Jones, we'd stop there. And for the next 15 weeks, we'd just have a series on but now. <laughs> but because I'm not, we're going to continue. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, through which, and through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice, because of, in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. I can see why Martin Lowe joins would take so many, because there's so much in this passage. But we're doing bite size, so we're going to take that whole chunk uh, this evening. 
Paul, who wrote this letter, you will know that he wasn't always called Paul. He was called Saul. He was a Pharisee. He persecuted the church. But he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his life was transformed. And he became one of, if not the most influential follower of Jesus. And in the letter to the Romans, people describe it as his gospel. I don't think it's his gospel gospel as such, but he is beginning to work through the implications of what it means to say Jesus is Lord. What does that actually mean? What is behind it all? And he's addressing a church that is uh, made up of Jewish converts who have been adhering to the Jewish law and to Gentile converts who have come from paganism and all that that brought, and he's trying to hold them both and together and make a way forward in their understanding of what Jesus has done. So these two words that begin this passage, but now, have been described by different people in these amazing ways. Dr. Leon Morris, who's a theologian and uh, writer, commentator, says that this paragraph is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. I mean, that's pretty... Bold thing, isn't it? Martin Lloyd-Jones himself said there are no more wonderful words in the Bible than in this passage. And Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, called these words the epicenter of the book of Romans. Indeed, he said, these words can be described as the epicenter of the Bible. Now you're thinking, gosh, what did we just read? Because when we read it, I don't think any of you were saying, that must be the epicenter of the Bible. These must be the most important words ever written. Well, I wasn't when I read them. Because we live at a different time. We read these words and we say, yeah, we get it. Yet for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church didn't see it. And the leaders of the church refused to see it. And when Martin Luther read these words and suddenly realized, you can be saved by faith alone. And he went and nailed his thesis to that door in Wittenberg. I'm trying to recall all my church history. And it caused a bit of a stir. We call it the Reformation. It was a big deal. The rediscovery of grace in the church. See, the church had got so corrupt. You could buy indulgences. That the Pope or other so-called saints, if you contributed enough funds, would, would actually pray that you may be blessed. Or that friends of yours may have less time in purgatory for money. And Luther, quite rightly, just says, this is all rubbish. And contrary to the gospel, it had all gone bad. And so the Reformation begins, the discovery of grace. It was a spiritual renewal right across Europe 
in the 16th century. And of course, human abuses of that. Henry VIII takes it and says, well, I can use that. In this passage that we've just read, it is the passage where the Reformation grasped, and it has to be grasped by every generation. You go on a few hundred years, and John Wesley had to, and reading Romans again, had to grasp it afresh. He was a believer in Jesus, but he said he had the faith of a slave, not the faith of a son. And suddenly he felt his heart strangely warmed and he got hold of this and he went up and down this country preaching in the open air and there was a massive revival. And we needed it. From Romans. Grace rediscovered. And the songs that we sing, so many of the songs that we sing now are just... um, those words put into music, in Christ alone. That is the Reformation. In Christ alone my hope is found. I don't have to earn my salvation. I could never earn it. So as Paul um, outlines these doctrines, he uses some big words as well as the small words. But Martin Luther picked out these words, but now as the turning point. Because up until now, yes, Paul had begun by introducing the good news. In chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God has been revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Pretty clear to me. And then for nearly three chapters, Paul outlines the bad news. And calling it the bad news doesn't really do it justice. This is terrible news that he outlines. All human beings, says Paul, of every race, every rank, every creed, every culture, Jew or Gentile, moral or immoral, religious or irreligious, are without exception all under God's righteous judgment. Or to put it another way, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All are without excuse. All are enemies of God by nature. And what he means by that is that in our human nature, we have rebelled against God and made ourselves enemies of God. Put it another way. There is universal revelation. There is universal transgression. And there is universal condemnation. There is no one righteous, not even one, Paul writes. And despite all our best efforts, we fall short. Martin Luther himself had sought to get right with God through religion. And it just made him miserable and more miserable and even more miserable. Because the harder he tried, he just knew he didn't have that peace with God. And then the revelation came, but now God has done something. So Paul has gone to town in a way with the bad news. We are without God and without hope in the world left to ourselves totally lost. It's not the news lots of people want to hear, is it? People don't mind perhaps hearing that God is love and God loves them because that's quite nice, cozy, isn't it? But when God says, 
you have sinned and fallen short of my glory and you deserve my wrath, but I love you. People don't like the first bit because it exposes us. Who of us likes to face our sin head on and say, that's what I am? But now, but now what? But now God himself intervenes because of his great love for us, because he loves everything and everyone that he has made. And in sort of like the old movies, it's now you get to this bit in chapter 3 and the cavalry arrives and it's really great. Or dawn has broken after a really long, dark night. Or in some other films, the jury has stood to deliver the verdict and we're all on the edge of our seats. All this bad news that Paul has been outlining has just to say, this is the mess we were in. But now, God. But now God has broken in. And suddenly something changes and it changes everything and then he starts to use bigger words words like justified righteousness it repeats it seven times in five verses these words justified righteousness but now by faith in Jesus Christ we are declared justified and this word again it has such depth to its meaning simply means we are declared innocent, not guilty. In Greek, it's a legal forensic term. In Hebrew, it has a relational term to it. And Paul uses it in both contexts. Yes, we are declared innocent, not guilty. But we also are declared righteous, right with God. Our relationship with God is restored. So we are justified And we are clothed in God's righteousness. And by a quirk of the English language, it really works. Because justified never sinned. We are treated as we had never sinned. Because, Paul goes on to outline just why. God has done something amazing for us. I've been asked many times, particularly on Alpha Courses... Why doesn't God just ignore our sin? If he loves us so much, why can't God just turn a blind eye to our sin? And why can't he just let everyone into heaven because he just turns a blind eye to sin? After all, if he loves everyone, why can't he do that? Well, Paul argues in this passage that God cannot be God if he does that. Because within God, he cannot hold sin. In heaven, there will be no sin. In the new heaven and new earth where Jesus comes back and makes everything new, there will be no sin. It has to be dealt with. It has to be finished with. So has he ignored sin? No, he cannot. Has he turned a blind eye to sin? No, he cannot. Has he postponed judgment for our sin? No, he has not. Has he written off our sin as a bad debt? No, he has not. So what has he done? Paul tells us he has paid our debt in full. He has faced our sin 
and taken it upon himself. So God who is just lives up to his justice and deals with sin. He has taken our judgment, our punishment upon himself. So he has faced sin full on and paid for them. A righteousness from God has been revealed. He is the one who justifies. And elsewhere he writes in Romans, who is it that condemns? Well, it's the enemy who condemns. God doesn't condemn us. He wants to save us. It's the enemy who rubs things in. God wants to rub them out. He is the one who justifies. Two more big words from Paul that he uses in this passage. Redemption and atonement. And the picture here of redemption, some of you will be familiar with these words, others not. The picture of redemption is someone being redeemed comes from the slave market. Imagine in your mind's eye a slave market where someone is, is brought up probably in chains and there's bidding for this slave. Who will buy this slave? And in our history that's happened Many, many times. And someone will bid, and people will bid for that slave, and they will buy that person. And the image here is that Jesus is there saying, I buy that person to set them free. I redeem that person. So I pay the price for them to go free, and I free them. So we are not slaves of Jesus Christ. We are friends of Jesus. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus. Because he has paid the price. He has ransomed us. Paid the ransom price for us. And the price was his life. His death on the cross was the price. God cannot ignore sin and still be God. And if the wages of sin are death, God satisfies his own justice himself. He dies in our place. So God's justice falls on himself. And in the sacrifice that Jesus makes, the symbol of the Christian faith, which has always been the cross. Because it is the centerpiece that Jesus paid for our sins. He was our substitute. His blood covers us. There was a news story some years ago on November the 28th. I don't know if you remember this. In 2008, Terrorists stormed a hotel in Mumbai, India. There was carnage everywhere. Many, many people died. One survivor told how he and his friends were eating their evening meal in the restaurant when the gunman burst in. And they were just shooting everybody. Bullets everywhere. 
This one survivor says, I only survived because I was covered in someone else's blood and they thought I was dead and left. And, I mean, you can't take that image too far, but in the same way, we are. He survived because they thought he was dead because he was covered in blood. But it wasn't his blood. He was covered in someone else's blood. And in the same way, when Jesus dies on the cross, we are covered by his blood. It's the fulfillment of the Exodus, the Passover, the blood on the doorposts. The angel of death passes over. Jesus' blood cleanses us of all our sin. So the punishment that we deserve, says Paul, because we've all sinned, all have sinned. No one is without excuse. Is covered by Jesus. He takes our place. Jesus steps forward and in that sense takes our punishment and makes atonement, makes us one with God. So on the cross, if you can imagine this, the wrath of God against sin, the justice of God, the rightness of God meets with his mercy and his grace and his love. All of them meet together. His wrath, his justice, his mercy, his grace and his love all meet. And sin is dealt with. Justice is done. God's wrath against sin is dealt with. Paid for. His mercy is done. And love wins over it all. That Jesus went to the cross because he loved you and me. That is the heart of the gospel for Paul. That Jesus gave his life for us. It is a window on God's heart for us. And at that moment, in, again in our imaginations, we can think that Satan thinks, yeah, I've, done, I've got it. Jesus is dead. Son of God is dead. But death, it can hold us because we're sinful. But death can't hold Jesus because he is sinless. And so he raises, Father raises Jesus from the dead. Death has no hold on him. And what is Jesus's becomes ours. So now we have eternal life. Not only forgiveness of sins, but eternal life. Because death has no hold on us. The church is the only organization in the whole of creation that never loses a member through death. We're promoted to glory. See, we read this and we think, yeah, tell me something new. I know all this. But through church history, it has had to be revisited again and again and again. It is all of God and not of us. We cannot earn it. We cannot even contribute. 
all of Jesus. And how? How do we receive this gift, what Jesus has done? Again, Paul is very simple in this. By faith. By faith. Simply. Trusting. Believing in Jesus. That he is God the Son. That he is sin sacrifice. That he is Savior and Lord. And when we believe, all that he is and all that he has done becomes ours. And that's the way it comes, through faith. I know Christians even to now who think, you know, they need to earn it somehow. We don't need to earn it. It's free. Yes, I know that Jesus says, come, give your life. But that is the response of our heart to him. That's not to earn salvation. That's a response of love. Simon prayed it earlier. It's a response to his amazing grace. Martin Luther remembers the times when he groveled on his hands and knees up to the altar. When he would hit himself as punishment for his sins. Yet it never took it away. When he believed God. When he believed Jesus. It was gone. And it's open to all. To all who will believe. I might like to ask Paul, why so heavy with the bad news? C.H. Spurgeon, blessed be his name, said, Too many think too lightly of sin and therefore think too lightly of Jesus. I'll repeat that. Too many think too lightly of sin and therefore think too lightly of Jesus. Because I'm all right, really. I'm quite a good bloke. Sometimes we don't realize how lost we were until Jesus found us. We still don't. We live amongst people who are lost for eternity unless they come to faith in Christ. And we do hurt for them, but certainly speaking for myself, not enough. I know the heartbreak of ministering to people whose family members die without Christ. And although we can never know, because only God knows the heart, there is that pain of, I don't know. And that's when it becomes real. And that's why Jesus has sent his church out on mission. Because it's free to all who will believe. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think I mentioned this last time. If we only realized the enormity of it all, we would be left speechless. Or put it in common parts, gobsmacked by the whole thing. If we understood the, the enormity of it all, we would never get over it. We'd never get over what Jesus has done for us. Bono of U2, 
I read this quote of him recently. And I've, always, I've been a fan of you two ever since I first saw them. I saw them at a Greenbelt Festival years and years ago. And it was, uh, I can't remember how long, it was a long time ago. And Cliff Richard was on. And, and uh, yeah, that's how long ago it was. And the field was full of Cliff Richard fans and whatever. And then they introduced this little known Irish band called U2. And the field emptied. And there was just, I don't know, a couple of hundred left. And within a couple of years, you couldn't get a ticket into one of the massive stadiums around the world. And in those early days, Bono was so clear about his faith. Those early songs were so clear. And then kind of the fame thing and, and you know, rock God status and all that. Yet this is a recent quote from him. I would be in big trouble if karma was going to be my judge. You understand what he means? Because karma doesn't deal with my mistakes. Doesn't forgive my sin. I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus Christ took my sins away and dealt with them on the cross. I was so encouraged to read that. That through it all, he is still knows it's about Jesus and what he did on the cross. Paul has had us all stand before God and to realize that we've all fallen short. And left to ourselves, we'd be convicted and condemned. Paul says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. Jesus has paid for us and made the way. And now when we look at the cross and when we worship, we sing for joy or even weep for joy because Jesus has paid it all. That's why Martin Luther thought that was such a brilliant passage. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say? What can we do in response but worship you? And we're going to do that. We're going to raise our voices again in praise. And just thank you for what you've done for us. We were lost, and you found us. We were without hope, and now we are people with a destiny, with the glory in our hearts, the riches of your grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We bless you. Amen. We're going to sing in response. Again, feel free to sit or kneel or whatever, but we'll begin by standing and uh, we'll just spend this time responding to God's amazing, amazing grace. Let's stand.